Welcome to the Center for Lit Podcast Network. You're listening to How to Eat an Elephant, a little book club for large books. Have you ever cast your eyes across a shelf full of classics and been driven screaming from the room by 500-page monsters with thick spines and important names? Then this is the show for you. We're here to take on these scary books together, because how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Well, hey, friends, welcome back to How to Eat an Elephant. How are your jaws? How are your jaws doing today? How's all the chewing and the munching going here at the very end We're of War and Peace? Up. That will never not be gross. It will never not be gross, but I'm also never not going to say it. Um, you guys, <coughs> here we are in part two of the epilogue of War and Peace. And I had a, an interesting revelation today as I was reading. This feels more so than any other portion of the book like a history textbook. And I was learning things. I mean, I th- at, at, b- along with my <laughs> frustration, I mean, real frustration with Tolstoy for doing this to us again here at the end, I also found myself going, dang, this guy is smart. And man, that that analogy works well. And and so anyway, I'm kind of excited to talk about it because I just I feel like maybe at long last he's coming around to the point and is not obfuscating and is not using metaphor. He's actually giving us the real meat of his thoughts. Well, his what are your thoughts theory, about that? You mean yeah. his philosophy mm-hmm. of history? Yeah. I hope that I, I it definitely started strong with some clarifications of what he sees as the two purposes of history. One to identify the will of a divinity that, that funnels itself into one important man. He's basically, he's analyzing history and he says, there are two things that historians try to do. They try to identify the will of the divinity that's, that's funneling through one important man who will move events. And then two, they try to identify the goal towards which that force is pushing right. that man and all the people who follow him. And mm-hmm. he says, it's the goal of every historian to identify those two things. I love the fact that he... Because one of the things that he does early on here in this section is draw a line, a really firm line between the modern historians that he is trying to, I think, all of them, like maybe the entire (laughs) profession, he's trying to say, you guys suck, you're doing it wrong. And the ancient historians, and the main distinction between the two of those is that the ancient ones are willing to acknowledge that there is a divinity moving things. And the modern ones, for no particular reason, other other than maybe just the arrogance of of modernity in men's intellectual history uh, have decided that God is not a thing anymore. Right. And so they've cut the legs out from under their ability to say anything important about history. And, and it's a really good argument. It actually, it works Mm -hmm. with that comparison between ancient and modern ways of thinking about this. It all kind of comes together, I think. And, and it's making sense to me, Emily. He's essentially saying that the modern historians have been unwilling to fully embrace the consequences um, taking God out of the picture. Right. And he, right at this point, he's not even saying that there is a God, and he's not even saying that the ancient historians were right. And I'm sure that he would have bones to pick with the way that the ancient historians did it. Right. Oh, I I feel sure of that as well. (laughs) Well, because they were so focused on one man. Right. Right. Um, And he's very much for the equality of all participants. But what he is doing here is just saying, okay, like, we're just gonna analyze what has happened here. And he is just laying it out without taking a side, really. Oh, I don't mean, yeah, he's trying not to take a side here as he lays out the holes in the argument of the moderns who want to 
who want to perform historical analysis without in the absence of, of divinity. Yeah. But I also think that he's saying something really true, which is the problem with that stance is that it says something about humanity that's totally false. We actually, because we're human beings made in God's image, know that there is a divinity and know that there is a power outside of us moving things around. And so even the modern historians, while they deny God, have to find something to stand in for that motive mm -hmm. force. And so they just call it power. And then he goes along and basically says, power doesn't exist. That's not a real thing. Like it, 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 it's real in our lived experience. But if you really dig down into the philosophical underpinnings of the notion of power and how power impacts the movement of nations and armies and people groups... It's not a real thing. It's a stand-in. It's a it's a it's a it's a god substitute. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that that that's a very particular yeah. definition of power because he does say it's true. It it exists in our experience. Power right. is real. Mm -hmm. The way you guys are defining it is desiccated. Yep. I think that's really true. Yeah. I think that's a good way of putting it. The when it comes to his definitions of power because this is kind of what he uses to to take his next step, which is to say there's two different kinds of modern historians, the generalists and the specialists, mm -hmm. and they approach history in two different ways that eventually sort of amount to the same thing. But the, he used an idea that was really well that, that stuck in my mind. He says the ancients look at fire as an element and the modernists look at fire as a phenomenon. Hmm. And, and so uh, fire is an instance of particular things happening. It's a result of something to the moderns. Whereas for the ancients, fire was an element. It was one of the elements in the world. And it, and it always exists. It had its own being. Just so the notion of power, right? So for the ancients, power was connected to the divine will. And it was therefore elemental. And for the moderns, it has to also be elemental because they're still people. They're still human beings, and we need that to be elemental. They've just taken the motive force away from it. And so they're looking, they're trying to look at power as a phenomenon instead of as an element that's connected to divinity. Or like because it is a phenomenon, there has to be an engine behind it, right? right. The the analogy with the train, right? It, the one man says the train moves because the wheels turn and the steam coming out of the pipe and right. all of these things are not the actual motive force of the train. They're just the phenomena of the train. Right. In other words, the modern historian has disassociated the phenomenon of power from its motive force, which is the divine will, right? Or am I getting that backwards? Well, he hasn't come out and said that yet. It seemed, yeah, I think you're right. Coming, he hasn't but, he hasn't landed yet. But it he's he keeps it it is orbiting the idea of of a of providence, right? It's it's orbiting the idea of providence. Yeah. Well, it is a little bit because didn't he argue at some point? I'm trying to find it, but I can't. That because our modern culture does not believe any longer because they've tossed the idea of the divine will. Now they're just left with a question that's disassociated from its its real context. And the question is, what force moves peoples? Now that we don't believe in divinity any longer, now we just have to call it force, and it's going to be nebulous and ambiguous. We're never going to get all the way back to the source of that question. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that he's, I don't think he's taken that idea all the way to the end yet. I hope that he does. I hope that he comes around and tells us what what he believes that force is. But right now he's just jousting with various philosophies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so, too. And he's also the observation that he's making is really is really pertinent and true, which is that the disassociated as it is from its true cause, all we can do is examine, 
a multiplicity of tiny little causes. And eventually, since no book can be long enough, although he's really testing that limit, but no book can be long <laughs> enough to actually track down every cause and it's and so the effect and then go back to the cause and then go back to the cause of the cause and then go back to the cause of the cause of the cause and so on and so on. It's infinite. It's an infinite regression. This is very much like Aquinas' argument for God. One of his arguments for right. God. Right. Exactly. But what Tolstoy is mm-hmm. what what Tolstoy is trying to say is that this is why all historical interpretations in the modern era fail, because eventually they have to stop at somewhere because they can't go back infinitely into the past. And so because of limitations of space on the page and limitations of the human mind and its ability to apprehend all of these causes, um, the modern historian falls into all different kinds of, of error. And the principal one, of course, that he's been on about this whole novel is the great man theory. That it's the will of one individual that governs, that is the force that moves people. Right, exactly, right. And the generalist historian will talk about that in a particular way, and the specialist historian will talk about that in a particular way, but they're both saying the same thing, and it's wrong in Tolstoy's view. Which adds depth to the other times in the book when he said, you're missing the point, it's a multiplicity of causes. Right. Well, I think if you take the sum total of what he's arguing here, even that, even acknowledging the multiplicity of causes isn't quite enough mm-hmm. because he argues that even the general historians who say, okay, it's not one man, it's many men, the force, the, they're just like subdividing that force, that power into multiple people. But when you right. add it all together, it still doesn't equal the total of the other side of the equation. Right, exactly. And then also, and this is this is something that stuck out to me, it's illusory. The we have we have invent he he compares it to money. He compares it to the difference between being on the gold standard and being on some sort of, of currency that, that a nation develops, right? It's it's done for utility's sake in the beginning because the coins are lighter and easier to use than actual bars of gold. But it only works insofar as the people that are using the currency agree to its value. Mm-hmm. And it isn't actually backed by anything. And scary stuff. Yeah. And he, very, yeah, very and scary. More or less, <laughs> too real, too close. Tolstoy. Well, yeah. Especially to what? It's a little <laughs> prophetic, but, but I think he applies that to, to the idea of what the generalist and the specialist historian in the modern era are doing. They're basically going to a people group and saying, given that we all share the same presuppositions that there is no God and that the activity and the will of man is what's really moving stuff around down here, then we can operate in this way. And he's saying, ah, but you're missing the gold. You've turned it all into paper currency and it doesn't work anymore. Mm-hmm. Which I thought was a, kind of a brilliant analogy. He also, as usual for Tolstoy, gets so many sarcastic little jabs in. Did oh you guys gosh. notice? <laughs> what about that sarcastic summary of Napoleon's life again? I mean, it's like Napoleon, so the little Napoleon is like, hit me again. Tolstoy's after it. And he says, I don't want you to think I'm just... What's the line? It was such a good line. He says, it would be wrong to think that this is a mockery, a caricature of historical descriptions. But if you go back and read the paragraph right before that, the mammoth paragraph, it is a mockery and a caricature of historical descriptions. It is, but but he's also doing a neat trick in saying that this is actually a fair representation of what the historians say. And... The strangeness and comicality of these answers come from the fact that modern history is a deaf man answering questions no one has asked him. Mm-hmm. In other words, there's a project going on in, in modern historical work, and the project is to interpret the whole of human existence without the existence of God. And it's a failed project, and so they're having a conversation that isn't actually of any use to anyone. Because they're asking existential questions, but removing the possibility of God who would answer An them. answer. Yeah. Exactly. Do you yes. guys think that that's still relevant? I'm just thinking here about the time that Tolstoy was writing in the end of the 19th century. Um, and that was 100% true. And like, 
there's it was kind of a romantic sheen over history. People are saying stuff like, "Well, it had to be because freedom is right. like the oh, end man. goal of all of the end of history." And so, look at how look at how if freedom is the goal, the course of history has moved us all towards that. Right. But then, then he basically says we can use in place of the word freedom any one of a number of other generalizations. Abstractions, right. right. Yes. I don't, I'm just trying to think if that's still true or if we've taken even the existential question out of our history. Like I'm just thinking of the, as a history major and all of the historiographies that I had to read, I, I just don't know if, I mean, there is definitely a strain, especially in American history, that even does that, right? Freedom, it had to be, right? Yeah. But um, I, so much of a history book now is simply a relaying of the facts. Yeah. Like, without necessarily trying to push, maybe a, they push a value judgment, which maybe that's that's it. Maybe that's the problem. Well, but, isn't it? Isn't it also? And maybe we're going too far afield here. But it seems to me that part of what he's saying is our our collective human obsession with transcendentals mm-hmm. is part and parcel with our yearning to know mm-hmm. the divine will, and that in the modern era we've substituted the one for the other. Mm-hmm. We're on about transcendentals because we're no longer given the option of being on about God. Well, I guess my question is: is postmodern like contemporary history concerned with transcendentals i don't know i don't know if it is i mean his his answer though is really satisfying his answer is really satisfying to me and this is the part where he where he comes out and says it megan this might have been what you were looking for yeah what does it all mean why did it happen what made these people burn houses and kill their own kind etc these are the involuntary involuntary simple-hearted and most legitimate questions that mankind poses for itself encountering the memorials and traditions of that past period of movement to settle these questions mankind's common sense turns to the science of history which has for its goal the self-knowledge of peoples and of mankind if history had maintained the view of the ancients It would say that a divinity to reward or punish its people gave power to Napoleon and guided his will towards achieving its divine purposes. And that answer would be full and clear. One might believe or not believe in the divine significance of Napoleon, but for the believer in it, everything in the history of that time would be comprehensible and there could not be a single contradiction. So I think that that might be the closest he gets to giving us an answer in this in this section, right? I think you're right because he's even saying I'm willing to. I think he's saying I'm willing to acknowledge that Napoleon was a significant player in history, and because if you are willing to say it was a divinity that like put him forward, although he's been spending this whole novel telling us that shaped man's ends, to quote Shakespeare. Uh, well, <laughs> yeah, he but he's been disproving that this whole novel that Napoleon basically had nothing to do with what happened. So there's that. But it seems like he's saying, okay, so he was still he was the tip of the cone, right? He was still the visible player and the one that we write about and there could be a divine purpose for that. And if it's true that there's a divinity behind it, then we like the end core the value judgment isn't actually on us. On right. A, I want to be more careful about that, well, but it, like the, the, um, the reason that the divinity had for, for moving Napoleon forward, it, we can't say it was freedom. We can't say it was 
uh, depl- like we can't say it was evil. Like we can't say really anything because we don't know why. Well, right. That's not our business. The next couple of pages, he comes back around to the idea and he says, all that may very well be. And mankind is ready to agree with it. But it is not asking about that. All that might be interesting if we recognize the divine power based on itself and always the same that governs its peoples through Napoleon's Louis and writers. But we do not recognize that power. But if we did, he says, it would be based on itself and always the same. Right. So asking Mm -hmm. the, the divine will any questions about why it did what it did in moving peoples the way that it did would be beside the point. And I hear that. I hear a lot of Tolstoy in that right there. That if we do assume the divine will is the source of all the movements of peoples, then there is a point at which a creature's only response is to accept what is happening without rationalizing. Don't you hear Tolstoy there too? I do for sure. But this is also, and we've we've trod over this ground before, it's also a little bit of a contradiction inherent yeah. in his writing. And what I see in this section is that he actually might not be as unaware of that as I've been accusing him of being. Like, I maybe he's actually aware of the inherent contradiction in, in, in his project because he's trying at once to say, all of you need to stop explaining things while then spending all of his time explaining things. And so... I don't know. I think you're right. It, it Eventually, it has to settle on, since the divine will is operative, then our ceaseless need to explain everything is either more or less appropriate. Did you notice, though, and this this might be a little bit of a, of a curveball, did you see Star Wars in here? Because I did. Star, Star Wars? Star Wars what do you all mean? The place. <gasps> yeah, think about it. So he actually, he brought up two interesting genres that he, I'm sure he was unaware at the time, but have become really significant since. And I think it's a it's an interesting piece of cultural prophecy. He talks about how our stories culturally are now about superhumans. Mm-hmm. And that's only more true now than it was then, right? And then he also talks about the fact that we have substituted the word force in an effort to explain, <laughs> an effort to explain the, um, to explain the connection between persons and movements of peoples, right? We talk about forces because, yeah, we're just humans, right? We actually know inherently in our at a soul level that there's something moving everybody, and so if we don't ad- admit God, if we don't acknowledge the existence of the divine will. We've got to substitute something for it. So he talks about power for a little while. And then he talks about the force for a little while, which is totally fascinating. And then he talks about our collective obsession with our own wills, with our own ability to make things happen and make things move. And that's, I think, where it gets really interesting. Yeah. When he's thinking about what, when he's thinking about the superhero one that you were mentioning, Ian, the, the kind of power that might enable one man to lead a group the way that he sees it happening. He divides it into a couple different sorts of, of force or, or superhero qualities. He says there's a moral force, a physical domination, or a special force of soul and mind called genius. And I think that's kind of an interesting categorization. There are three ways that a, a man can be charismatic enough to carry the people before him. And those are the those are actually the ways that superheroes are portrayed in Marvel movies. It's totally true. <laughs> it's totally true. But also, this feels like I, mean, I felt this is where I started learning stuff. As I mentioned earlier, I felt a little called out by his characterization of the modern mind and how it works because I actually kind of think this way. In particular, when he started talking about the third kind of historian, which is the historian of culture, yeah. mm, the idea, right? The idea and, and, and talking about ideas at the heart of everything. And those are the motive forces. Dude, that's the kind of education that we received ourselves 
and the kind of education that we try and give to our students. And it's a little, it was a little convicting, honestly, to look at the results of that, because if he's right, the historians of culture get it just as wrong as everybody else in talking about freedom and equality and, and all of that as what moves mankind. (laughs) He skewers us. He says, yeah, but not to speak of the inner merits of histories of this sort, perhaps they're even needed by someone or for something. Very sarcastic. The histories of culture, which all general histories are beginning to come down to more and more, are remarkable in that while thoroughly and seriously analyzing various religions, philosophical and political teachings as causes of events, each time they have only to describe an actual historical event, for example, the campaign of the year 12. They describe it involuntarily as a product of power, saying outright that this campaign is the product of Napoleon's will. In speaking this way, the historians of culture involuntarily contradict themselves or prove that the new force they've invented does not express historical events and that the sole means of understanding history is that power which they supposedly do not recognize. How much do we do that? Well, I actually, I know what you mean, and I do acknowledge that 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 is a a danger. But I think that actually good reading of literature goes a long way towards breaking that down because it focuses on the human and the personal. Mm -hmm. So essentially what he's saying is, okay, like take the civil war. I don't know why. Like you always take the civil war. (laughs) I I love it. I I studied the civil war a lot. So it's my natural, my natural example, but okay. It's a really good one because it was ideological to an extent, right? Right. We're going to free the slaves. We believe in equality. We're going to fight this war. The, the culture historian says, well, uh, people have been writing about this for a while. You know, we got Harry Beecher Stowe writing in Uncle Tom's Cabin. All these things are coming together so that this war happens and freedom is achieved. Tolstoy would say, but if we examine that further, and then I'm thinking of things like Red Badge of Courage and like, yeah. so, like Killer Angels, like the really good literature that looks back at the Civil War, what we know is that So a Union soldier signs up for the war because he doesn't really feel ideologically motivated. His father is harping on him because he he wants his son to make him proud and he's going to disown his son if his son doesn't show courage. So his son signs up for war and then in the battle... He he is brave and fights well, but that's because his he's fighting with his brother and he wants to protect his brother. He's not thinking about the idea, right? Those are the little micro concerns that Tolstoy is talking about that negates the 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 mm-hmm. culture historians cause. And I think literature does that really well. It shows us that really well. Right. Doesn't that lead him to his final assertion, or at least of our section for today, that this power is equal to if you could identify every single person's motivation, that's the only way that you mm-hmm. could really label or identify this this cause, this power. Why it happened. Right. Yeah. You'd have to correctly identify the motivation of every single person and not leave out even one. Right, which is an impossibility, I think he's suggesting. Um, But then then I think he also goes a step further than that and says, even if you did that, Mm -hmm. you would still be missing something. I agree, because why? Why did the person... Sometimes people act a certain way and they don't even know themselves why they did that. So what is the cause for the person feeling the way they did that caused them to do the thing they did? There's still that X factor. Yeah, and I think... I'm digging up more little paragraphs where he dances around the issue. 
the beginning of chapter four here in in part two of the epilogue, he says, having renounced the view of the ancients on the divine submission of the will of the people to a chosen one and on the submission of that will to a divinity, history cannot take a single step without contradiction unless it chooses one of two things. And this is characteristically Tolstoy and how blunt he is. Either to return to the former faith in the direct participation of that divinity in the affairs of mankind, or to explain definitely the meaning of that force productive of historical events, which is known as power. And in, in saying that, I think he says to the modern historian, and frankly, to the modern mind and the way that it comports itself, either define your terms in the absence of God or take him back. Those mm-hmm. are your only options. Mm-hmm. And I've, I'll be darned. I think he's right. I think he's right. Do you mean by define your terms, assign some other vague or intangible abstraction to a purpose or a purpose or a goal? Sort of. I think actually this is where his his idea about an equation comes in. And he basically says, if we're going to define power and if power is going to provide us with a satisfactory answer to how the, the will of man comports itself and how we all move, how people groups move, then that definition of power has to be sufficient to balance the equation. That has to actually be able to motivate all of this multiplicity of causes. And his assertion, I think, is that it can't. Mm -hmm. Well, because this is when he says, okay, so we'll take God off the table. The two questions then the historian has to wrestle with is man in time and then basically man in space, right? Like in time, the man causes an event. And this is where we get the causes that go back into infinity, right? Something caused him to do that and something caused him to do that and back and back and back. Um, And you're going to have to find the original, the the uncaused cause, the unmoved mover. Uh, In space, let's see, that argument goes that the man has to be, this is where we get the cone, right? The man, the decision maker has to be participating in the thing that he causes. And he basically shows us that the more we say, the man has power, the further removed he is in space from, from the actual events happening. Yeah. yeah. Yes, that was fascinating. Which is an interesting phenomenon because he's not wrong. He says this is how it works in trade. This is how it works in like committees. This is how it works. And he's totally right that there's a cone structure and there's always this base of the cone that's actually doing the work and then the decision maker at the mm-hmm. top. And the the base of the cone has way more power yeah. than the man at the top. Yeah, he says power from that point of view of experience is only the dependence that exists between the expression of a person's will and the carrying out of that will by other people. Yeah. And so, so there's something that causes those people to, like sometimes they follow the tip of the cone and sometimes they go in their own direction and we don't really know why. Yeah, and that's where he brings, he brings in the herd metaphor, right, with the cows. <laughs> And basically says, look, dude, the way that you're doing history is saying, well, that cow in the front there must have the combined will of all of the cows behind him and they're following him unquestionably. And then, of course, the herd changes direction and there's a different cow at the, <laughs> at the front. And what? And this makes no cotton picking sense. And I think that's really what he's what he's on about. This doesn't make any sense. It's it. It purports to be science, the science of history. And yet it is anything but scientific because it's it's erected on a bunch of illusory ideas power and force and equality and freedom etc etc abstractions yeah yeah abstractions which is why i think i have to come around to the idea that i think it's still relevant because what history is doing now is trying to uncover the unknown and the untalked about right we're we're looking at the role of women and minorities and like 
we're finding really cool stories of people that we didn't know the stories of and there's value in that but essentially it's it's finding the cow at the edge right <laughs> like um it's still you're still missing that factor because the combined the force of that person was still not enough to mm. to cause you're just finding a new great man right it's right. still not going to work for you yeah exactly to explain and it's and we, and so he here's the thing though he has at least enough respect for the people that he's arguing against to give them the benefit of the doubt and say they probably see this particular hole in their own argument and so they've come up with another thing which is the theory of transfer of the will of the people the will of the masses to a particular man right like Let's talk about democracy for a second, or a situation in which a guy is crowned king by the will of the people. How quickly the tides can turn. Right, exactly. How quickly the tides can turn. But but he still says this is this is only a theory, and the theory itself is a restatement of the question. It's not actually an answer. He says, what's the cause of historical events? Power. What is power? Well, power is the sum total of wills transferred to one person. On what condition are the wills of the masses transferred to one person? On the condition that the person expressed the will of the whole people. Which is to say, power is power. And then he says, that is, power is a word the meaning of which we do not understand. (laughs) (laughs) I do not think that means what you think it means. Exactly. It's Inigo Montoya. Straight up. But all of this philosophizing aside, I still don't hear Tolstoy being specific with his own interpretation, putting a final word or a concluding thought on his project. I can see that he's got great facility with all of the philosophical projects in history going on around him. He's identifying them. He's skewering them. He's showing the ways that they are ambiguous. And I'm tracking with him. But I don't, I don't see yet what solution there is. I wonder if he's going to give us one. I, I hope so. I mean, I thought his... Did you, do you remember his stencil analogy? I was just going to bring that up. Yeah, yeah I think that's really What's interesting. More or analogy? less, he looks at... Well, he looks at the orders that Napoleon gave, which were given in writing, mm-hmm. right? And so you can actually know a lot of them. And what he says is, dude, the guy gave thousands and thousands and thousands upon thousands of orders, and none of them read invade Russia. None of them, right? Because all Napoleon is doing is reacting to what's happening, and his will is constantly influenced by the cause and effect that is that is taking place around him that's inexorable. And he, he compares it to, let's see, I'll just, I'll just read it. Just as in stenciling, some figure or other gets painted, not depending on the direction or manner in which paint is applied, but because the figure cut out of the stencil is smeared in all directions with paint. So there's got to be a stencil maker. I mean, his implication mm-hmm. is really clear, but you're right. He hasn't really settled on it yet. It's so good, though. Like, you can see <laughs> it's a great mental image because it's like, I think that the stencil is like the the will of god that this is what would happen in france right so they're like france mm-hmm. is like laid down on the paper and napoleon is like throwing down around orders and it's like he's got a giant crayon and he's just smearing <laughs> those orders around over the top of the stencil but like that's it's going in a particular direction and it's out of his control yeah right right i had an interesting conversation the other day on the topic of genius and whether genius is actually a real thing. And it's it surely, and maybe I'm speaking for myself, but I doubt it, surely an obsession of our cultural moment. We love talking about exceptional people. And I was just, I mean, I was just reading about Alexander the Great for school and, and was telling my brother about it and was just like, man, can you imagine the amount of power this guy had to take the take over the known world with an army of 35,000 troops is, is insane. And what an incredible military genius. 
And I stopped and thought, genius. What do I actually mean by that question? And then I read Tolstoy Have and he called it out. Nothing? Have you learned right? nothing? <laughs> Tolstoy totally calls me out on that. But it, it really is the assumption that there, there are repositories, that man exists to be a repository of some otherworldly power. And I think he would beef with the ancients, Emily, like you were saying earlier, because the ancients the ancients fall prey to the same instinct that we have, which is to like understand avatars. the cause yeah. all the way down to the bottom so that it can then be controlled, right? So that we can anticipate its movements so that we can be the captains of our fates. And I think Tolstoy might be saying something along the lines of yours is not to understand all the way down to the bottom. Yours is to experience. And then this is where his characters come in. Yours is to love. Yours is to lay down your life for your friend. Yours is to do all the things that humans do instead of presuming on the divine will and presuming to understand it and and be its instrument. I hope he comes down on something along those lines. It certainly seems to be implied. Yeah, I mean, given the end of the last section, it does seem like that's what he wants to say. And then also, like, you, just humans are going to push for political, social, economic, whatever change. Like, that's just the way that we're wired. And it's a dumb thing to do <laughs> because we don't, we're just creatures, tiny creatures who don't have control. But like, it's just built into us to care about these things. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the X factors, right? For silly reasons, we get caught up with silly ideas and <laughs> history moves forward, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and I don't know, maybe I want him to be too, maybe I want him to give too thorough an explanation. Maybe he's not going to do that because that's part and parcel of the project. But but I do I do think he's at least implying that that silliness is actually the work of God. And, and that we might be smearing paint all over the stencil, but the stencil exists. And furthermore, its effect is a beautiful portrait. Its effect is actually a good goal for mankind and... And flourishing. I hope that he's not going to end our story with how silly you are to be existentially minded, you creatures. Right. How silly you are to yeah. be asking cause kind of questions or questions about causes mm. in the first place. Yeah. If that is where he lands, I will be disappointed because yep. I think it's one of the reasons he set out to write in the first place is that he has existential questions. And I want to give him more credit than that, that he is aware of and sympathetic to the plight of a mortal, you know? Oh, yeah. Well, I just wonder if it goes back to Pierre, Natasha asking Pierre, would Platon be on board with your ideas or would he would he be proud of you? And Pierre goes, yeah, no. No, Platon would be proud of my family. Yeah. So if we are going to ask these existential questions, stop looking, stop looking out there for the answer. Like Ian was saying, look here, look, look now look where you are because mm -hmm. that's really what matters and maybe you can find existential answers here in the common moment yep yeah mm -hmm. yeah i don't hear him denying that those answers exist at least not yet well you guys thank you for your your thoughts and i guess we'll what do we have emily how how, how well, many more chapters we're so close we're gonna finish the second part of the epilogue for next time and then we're not so there's an appendix oh my god the appendix <laughs> Is <laughs> sorry, was that out loud? I'm sorry. <laughs> the appendix is not part of War and Peace. It is Tolstoy's. It's basically his end notes. It's him talking about writing. Oh, fun! It's like okay. the 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 uh, deleted scenes or like the back 
behind the scenes Tolstoy tells us about his project. So we're going to save the appendix. So next episode is really our last official discussion of War and Peace. And then we'll do one more discussion where we talk about the appendix. And that will be our final wrap up episode for War and Peace. And I think that we should all come dressed in costume for that one and have furry hats on. And maybe we should play the theme song of War and Peace as we enter the episode. We should probably have a party for finishing War and Peace. I think we probably should with a lot of vodka. <laughs> I don't know, it seems right. And potatoes. Pass, yeah, some potatoes. Pat yourselves on the back, all of, both of you and all of you listeners. This has been a mighty trek through the Siberian wilderness of Tolstoy's mind. Mm-hmm. But I'm also, I'm also really excited. I think this is this is a wonderful, this is a wonderful experience, and I'm glad you guys joined us. Words agreed. <laughs> all right. Well, once more unto the breach, dear friends, and we will see you next time around on how to eat an elephant. Bon appetit. Bon appetit. Bon appetit. Want to follow along with our reading? You can find a link to the schedule in the show notes for this episode. How to Eat an Elephant is a part of the Center for Lit podcast network. Visit our website at www.centerforlit.com to find our other literary shows, resources, and our membership program, The Pelican Society, where you can get access to a variety of live discussion groups. You can also find us on most social media channels. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, happy reading.